Time Power podcast this week. The whole universe was in a hot, dense state, but nearly 14 billion years ago, expansion started. Wait! The earth began to cool, the autotrophs began to drool, the Neanderthals developed tools, we built a wall. We built the pyramids. Math, science, history, unravelling the mystery with one of the stars of the Big Bang Theory. Yes, Simon Helberg, who plays Hard Wallowitz, uh, drops by this week along with Hugh Grant to talk Florence Foster Jenkins, while the artist formerly known as T. Hiddy, Tom Hiddleston himself, also moseys along real nice to talk I Saw the Light. Probably should have led with that, but then he doesn't have his own theme tune, does he? Uh, hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt. Welcome to the Empire Podcast. This week, I'm joined by two colleagues of such lethal cunning, neither of whom have their own theme tunes. It's frankly... A disgrace. Uh, first up is our art house guru, a man who recently adopted a stray cat, but astonishingly didn't call it Werner Perzog or Christoph Kismiowski or even Federico Feline. <laughs> it's Phil DeSemelian. How are you? Hi, Chris. I'm good. Uh, I didn't well, ask. You haven't asked. That's what you asked. How are you, Chris? Hello, oh, Phil. It's too late now. Oh, God. <laughs> Um, I haven't. This is none of that's actually factually accurate. Okay, but I did. No, there's a cat that comes around and we say hi and hang out with it a bit. That you changed your stories yesterday. I didn't say that. Yesterday. Yeah, your your, your tune has changed. It. Anyway, what do you call your cat? Dog May. It's <laughs> perverse. But you don't. You, you actually you have a name, don't you? You told me oh, the yeah, name yesterday. Yeah, uh, we call <laughs> it Tess of the Perbervilles. <laughs> See. There you go. Yeah. That's, that's pretty good. Okay, Way pretty to prove good. you're not highbrow, Phil. Good. <laughs> good stuff. Uh, last but not least is our geek queen, a lady who doesn't have any pets at all, sadly. I know her plans parade. Jared Padalecki and Jensen Ackles down the street and a dog collar and lead do not count. Do they, Helen O'Hara? That's really twisted, Chris. That's super twisted. You so that wouldn't it. count. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. do, why do you not have pets? Because you, you own your home. Uh, yeah, but I don't have any outside space. It seems kind of cruel. I have some very well-loved trees. Ah, okay. Yeah. Or goldfish. You can have goldfish or a gerbil. I mean, that that just seems a bit pointless. I feel like you either have a dog or go home. So. <laughs> yeah. Uh, given the lifestyle we, we, we lead, where we're out partying 24 yeah. hours a day, seven days a year. It's the life we chose, the life we lead, Chris. And there is only one guarantee. <laughs> None of us can really have a dog. I know, it kills me on a daily basis. Um, uh, before we get started, uh, a quick shout out to Christopher Marcus and Stephen McFeely, the writers of Captain America Civil War, who not only listened to the podcast, but I interviewed them this, uh, earlier this week for the website. Uh, they actually requested I do my Tom York impression, which I do now and again in the podcast. Why would you, why would you do this? Uh, you, just, you don't do it now and again, you did it once. No, I've done it a couple of times. Oh, have you? Yeah. Uh, I didn't do it on the mm. phone because I had important things to ask about Bucky's hair. Uh, so I didn't do it at the time. But you know what? Mm. This week's all been, been about Albright Radiohead. They've resurfaced on social media with a new song. And uh, if you listen to it, we actually have a snippet here now. You can actually you can discern that it's actually about Captain America Civil War. Do you want to you you have a listen? It's more melodic than some of their more recent stuff, isn't <laughs> it? It is, it is. Uh, let's, let's listen to it now. This okay. exclusive excerpt from Radiohead's new song. Beep, boop, boop, boop. I'm coming, I'm coming. Boop, 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 boop. Bucky, save the children, save the children. Bucky, Bucky, lovely hair, save the children. Boop, 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 boop. Furnace. Wow, that's... That's... Quite new, dreadful. A new sound. Quite dreadful. I thought it was a return to form for Radiohead, but... No, it's, apparently it's not. pretty much the same as all the, <laughs> <laughs> the other stuff. It's not like they've got a sort of an Axel F, Howard Fultemeyer reference. <laughs> I don't know where that's come from. It's well, that's not an authentic Radiohead song. So mm. there we go. Did you see um, the video, by the way? 
No, I haven't seen the new Radiohead single. I haven't seen it yet. It's it's uh, it's quite excellent. It's the Camber Wicker Man. Camber. That's what it's called. I don't know, but it is the Camber Wicker Man. Right. It's Camber Green meets the Wicker Man. Yeah. It's really really cool. And thank you for that uh, exclusive excerpt. Okay, enough of that nonsense. Let's get on with the show with a question that is hard-hitting, thought-provoking, and very, very serious. This is from at Maggie Fernald via Twitter. If you could touch the booty of any Marvel superhero, who would it be? Brackets. One and only one. Okay, first of all, are we talking about booty as in, like, treasure? Or are we talking about booty as in posterior? I think we know the answer to this, but let's, let's say booty as in treasure, which means obviously... Which means obviously Iron Man, because although, yeah. you know, it would take a while if you had to, like, you know, go through all of his money, presumably that would that would be time-consuming. Yeah, absolutely. So maybe you'd be better off with, like, Spider-Man, so, you know, you can just, like, get that over with. Because he doesn't have any money, because oh, we're right. talking okay. about treasure, yes. Chris. Yes, sorry, I got really confused there for a second. Um, you could also touch the booty... Uh, money-wise, yes. of um, Ulysses Claw, who, as we know, thanks to the events of uh, Age of Ultron, is very, very rich. Uh, Ultron downloaded a lot of money into his account. Sure. Uh, so he became very rich overnight. And, and presumably, if anyone's seen Civil War, uh, Black Panther is, yeah. is not lacking. He's not short of a bob or two. Yeah. 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 Uh, and presumably Bucky, given that he has the word Buck in his title, is mm. has got at least one shiny silver dollar tucked I... away. In yeah. those underoos of his. I feel like you're not quite understanding that <laughs> Most <at> things. All. <laughs> yeah. all right, Tony Stark. Tony Stark's booty. Phil, uh, I know this question keeps you awake at night. Mm. Name all the Submariner. <laughs> <laughs> I just like getting him into all conversations. I <laughs> uh, don't really have a specific superhero in mind. Give me some options. Well, any of the Marvel superheroes that you've seen in in such movies as The Avengers, Avengers Age of Ultron, and perhaps Captain America Civil War. Yeah. You have seen that, haven't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, of course, right. I've seen all of those movies. I just yes. I haven't sat there. Or maybe you could like go through the touch. space booty of the Guardians of the Galaxy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> maybe Rocket. Maybe kind of... You sick pervert. You would touch the booty of a little furry animal? <laughs> Again, Chris, we're talking about treasure. Oh, yes, treasure, treasure, yes. yes. I would touch his treasure. Treasure beyond imagining. Uh, Benicio, del, Benicio del Toro, <laughs> yes, as the collector again is a man with a big booty. He he does have a lot of booty. Yes. Yeah. So I would answer his booty call. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the reason we're talking about all of this is because there's only one right answer otherwise, and that's Captain America. Uh, uh, I'm going to take the fifth <laughs> on that one. I believe is what they say over here. Um, why? Why? It's. Why? I mean, it's it's like you know. Hey, let's get into. <laughs> we we should mention you know. With the relevant person's consent, obviously, no touching of booty is appropriate otherwise, <laughs> but um, it's, a, it's an extraordinarily shapely posterior and is widely regarded as such on, online. I, I, you and I go to different websites quite clearly. Um, we, we should point out, uh, Helen is quite right, uh, that this is uh, a very lowbrow topic and I'm, I'm appalled and appalled, shocked I say. by the question posed by Maggie Fernald. I don't know. The thing, I think the one thing, and, and Phil, who mm. will agree with me on this one, I think the one thing that the MCU is lacking so far is a really gratuitous butt shot. There's quite a few Black Widow ones. This is true. But what I mean is, like, those scenes in, like, early Lethal Weapon, like, when... Or, like, Gibson, late Fast and Furious, or any Fast, Fast and, Furious. and Furious. But when Mel Gibson's in his trailer, and then he gets up and he's naked for no reason, he just walks <laughs> around and there's, like, a, a, a butt shot. That... 
up yes, with Star Lord. But that's like that's <laughs> like R rated, and I feel what they're doing is like the upper back shot instead with like yeah. Thor and Cap and well, yeah. practically all of them at some point. I feel we've seen everything of Thor except his his shapely bottom, and I feel that that's the next step, uh, perhaps in the in the universe as they come up against <laughs> Thanos. That's, I, 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 don't, that's, I don't think that's how you pronounce it. I believe it is. <laughs> yes, pretty sure not. Uh, we're going to go see Josh Brolin's Thanos in a. Uh, I in know. 20... Still, I, I don't want to see no? that. No. All the Avengers piling in no. on Josh Brolin's Thanos. <laughs> don't you want to see that? I do not. No. No. God knows where the hammer will end up. Anyway, thanks, Mikey Bernold, for that question. I think we tackled it. <laughs> It'll be highbrow fashion. Um, if you want to have your question read out in the Emperor Podcast. Why the hell would you, quite frankly, after that? Uh, do send them in. We're on Twitter as at Empire Magazine. Uh, you can use the hashtag Empire Podcast. Uh, we are on Facebook as Empire Magazine. And you can email us podcast at empireonline.com as well. And again, for the second week in a row, apologies to the person who sent in a question about great light bulb moments in movies. We will tackle that next week. But the, uh, the butt question was just too good to reviews. Too good to turn down. Uh, right. Uh, should we have a guest? Sure. That's a guest. guest. Uh, We've got two guests again this week. It's a two-guest jamboree. Uh, But first up is a man who needs no introduction. Because you'll know him from his amazing work as Loki in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, his work in independent cinema with directors like Jim Jarmusch, Joanna Hogg, and most recently Ben Wheatley on High Rise. You'll know him from his engaging social media presence, his recent star turn on telly in The Night Manager. You'll even know his reputation as one of the nicest guys in the business. And you'll know, of course, that he stars plays guitar and sings in this week's Hank Williams biopic I Saw the Light. So yes, Tom Hiddleston needs no introduction. And you certainly don't need to know that I went along to speak to him in a London hotel room this week. Enjoy. Delighted to be joined on the Empire Podcast by Tom Hiddleston. How are you, sir? I'm very good, sir. Excellent, excellent. Uh, are you it's jet lagged at the moment? Are you okay? Are you, are you, are I actually you feel alright, yeah. I've excellent. been in many time zones. Um, <laughs> and uh, I saw Idris Elba. I was on the same airplane as Idris Elba the last time I landed at London Heathrow. Uh-huh. And he said, what's the time zone? <laughs> <laughs> so Idris Elba doesn't have any time for time zones. <laughs> and nor do I. <laughs> he transcends time zones. Yeah, he does. Uh, so what was the last time zone you were in? You were in, were you, have you just was, fin- finished in Australia? Have you? No, I was in America. Okay. Yeah, I was in the States. Okay. Um, in all sorts of different places. Because... Um, all the films I made were coming out there. Yeah. Uh, I Saw the Light and High Rise uh-huh. and The Night Manager. Oh, wow. All out at the same time. All at the same time. Yeah. In a, in a cavalcade of the distance. <laughs> uh, amazing. Of course, you, you hugged the, uh, the baby leopard. I saw that. I did hug the, a baby uh, leopard on yeah. James Corden's Late Late Show. Yeah. Uh, he, was the, he had um, a, a conservation specialist called Jack Hanna, who's very well... He's very beloved in on America. Mm. He started off on the, oh God, he started off on a, on a, it was like the talk show before David Letterman. Okay. Which yeah. one was that? Uh, Johnny Carson. Johnny Carson. Yeah. Yeah. So he, people love this guy and he always brings on animals. Mm. So he brought on a baby leopard and some penguins. No, <laughs> some baby leopards and a penguin. There was just the one penguin. <laughs> so uh, you, over the last few years, you've had some surreal experiences. Uh, yeah. That must be up there, right? Definitely. Hugging a baby leopard. Yes. On, a, on national television. On national TV. Yeah. I mean, you must be, is it fraught with danger? Are baby leopards quite fragile? They are. are, are They're fragile and rare. 
And um, <laughs> and Jack Hanna's uh, sort of uh, colleagues had said to me before, it's don't treat it like a cat, as in a domestic cat, because if you you can sort of let a domestic cat jump on the floor and it will land on its feet and walk mm. about and, mm-hmm. and basically do its own thing. Do that to a baby leopard and it will just land on its head. So don't oh drop it. Oh, my God. Okay, yeah. Imagine the headlines. Imagine. Yeah. Tom Hiddleston kills baby leopard. Film Cruel, 11. awful man that he is. Yeah, is he really Loki? Now we know the answer yeah. uh, after all that. Um, you have a guitar with you today. which I is do. Which is amazing. Yeah. Uh, lovely, a lovely Gibson acoustic. Yeah. Uh, this is yours? This belongs to me. This yeah. was a gift uh, from, it's a J45, and mm-hmm. it's a gift of Rodney Crowell, who mm-hmm. was my, um, he was my tutor in the ways of the blues. Uh-huh. He was my, he was Mr. Miyagi to my karate kid. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, he helped me climb the mountain of playing Hank Williams. So at so, the end of it, he gave me a guitar. How proficient were you before you went into this film? I was the guy, so I started playing the guitar when I was maybe 16. Okay. Um, only because I wanted to learn how to play Knocking on Heaven's Door. Um, <laughs> and uh, I'd always kind of noodled around, but I didn't, I didn't know like I know now. Okay. Um, but the interesting thing about Hank's, Hank, Hank's guitar playing isn't actually that um, technically challenging. Uh-huh. It's not, it's funny. The other day when in the event of the tragic event of, of Prince's yeah. passing, yeah. Um, in the sort of, the, the, the reminiscence of his work and the things he sort of, he, he left behind, I saw for the first time his guitar solo I think it was uh, four or five years ago, um, in a live performance of uh, While My Guitar Gently Weeps by the Beatles. And he unleashes a solo of such astonishing virtuosity that I don't think I... The like of which I've never seen. I mean, I urge listeners to go onto the internet and find this solo. If they can, because Prince was notoriously, uh, he was uh, recalcitrant about things being on the internet. He, oh, he that's true. Yeah. But I think it's a live gig and he was, it's on YouTube. That's okay, where I excellent. Saw it. So um, I could never, I couldn't touch that. Yeah. I couldn't touch that kind of like um, virtuosity. I'm not, I'm not about to unleash a face melter. <laughs> <laughs> but Hank's rhythm guitar was basically followed this very simple, well, relatively simple blues template yes um which is a, which is three chord they call it three chords in the truth uh-huh. on a one four five progression you start on so the, of all the chords in the octave uh-huh. whichever chord you start on your second chord is four chords up and then your your third chord is the fifth so that's one okay. four five so if you start on an e yeah your next chord is an a yeah and then a b if you start on a g your next chord is a c um and that's how all most blues songs are put together. Wow! And at any point, were you were you floundering? Was your knowledge of the blues uh, quite a low level before you you started yeah. in this movie? My my knowledge of the blues and my proficiency at playing it was yeah. was floundering. But the, honestly, the hardest thing was the singing. Was, uh-huh. was trying was I had about six weeks, which I'd given myself to accelerate what Hank Williams had spent twenty five years honing and practicing. Um, and I remember the, one of my cleanest memories is, is, is um, Lovesick Blues, which, which is a song that made him a star. Yeah. Has a yodel in it. Yes. 
There comes a time in a man's life <laughs> when he is called upon to yodel. I don't know if it has it come to you yet, Chris. I, I've been frolicking through the uh, the Swiss Alps, okay, uh, yodeling yes. away. No, yeah. it actually, it hasn't. Although I, I did know that song when I was growing up, and I right. I yodeled along. Yeah. So um, he Hanks had this. I think Hank inside his in his vocal register, he was able to break his voice, mm. um, go up an octave in pitch. Yeah. Be right in tune and on pitch and then come back down and go up again. I sound like I'm quoting Chumba Wumba now. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But uh, to try and master that was completely new. And I remember Rodney has a a, a recording studio in the back of his house Mm. and he has a a Pro Tools desk, um, which is how, you know, music can be cut together. And I was in a, a soundproof, sort of soundproof box with a microphone trying to sing this thing time after time after time. And every, if I was in tune, I was a little bit too precisely in time. So I was sort of singing almost metronomically in time, whereas yes. Hank is more rebellious. He's singing, like, he's singing the blues, which yes. is always slightly off the beat. Yeah. So, and then if I was rhythmically in time, I was slightly out of pitch and... We did take after take. I was going mad. I mean, I was going because I thought I'm just never going to get there. Yeah. I'm never going to ride my bicycle without stabilizers. <laughs> this is agony. Um, and uh, eventually, I cracked it on about the 50 second take, and it felt. Wow. I've said this before, but it felt like I'd been swimming in the ocean through seaweed, and I was yeah. finally in clear water. Yeah. And then he told me afterwards. He said that um, Roy Orbison. The great who sang only the lonely yes uh, had recorded fifty six takes of only the lonely, and that's back in the day when the band would have had to play fifty six takes with him, yeah who would have hated him at the end of that <laughs> um, because he was trying to perfect different pieces, so that was the hardest thing was just singing there's a moment that uh, that actually opens the film uh, where you sing a cappella. Mm. Uh, as Hank Williams well the camera revolves around you very very slowly and I imagine I may be wrong in this that must have been the most terrifying moment of your acting career yeah definitely it was the op- the opening of the film mm-hmm. uh, I knew this film was going to be seen by people who love Hank's music and there are no surviving recordings of Hank singing without a band without musical accompaniment <laughs> so he must have sang a cappella, but we don't have proof of it yeah and uh, Mark Abraham, I remember him saying, he said, oh, this is how I want to open the film. Because people, if they know you, they are going to be curious about whether you sound like Hank. Mm-hmm. They're going to be curious. It's just a, it's, it's a, a declaration of intent to say, I'm playing Hank Williams and this is how I sound. And this is how, this is how, what it's, this is what it's going to be. Yeah. Um, it was very, vulnerable i can imagine um yeah but then i but then that was kind of exciting because i found i discovered through the course of making the film that singers and certainly singers who write their own material are so much more vulnerable as artists than actors actors well i'm not so list well actors can hide behind character yeah they can say well it's the character that i'm playing so he's going through that but actually probably what's going on is that there is something being expressed about the actor uh-huh. otherwise they wouldn't be able to go there uh-huh. um but singers are completely naked yes the voice is so raw and so pure and that's why i think 
music has that has a unique power is it, it within the creative arts and the performing arts mm. music is the most immediately emotional art form mm. um whoever it might be for you it might not be hank williams it might be nina simone mm. it might be johnny cash mm -hmm. it might be patsy klein it might be Frank Sinatra or Amy Winehouse or Jumbawamba let's go back to Jumbawamba it might in fact it might be be tub thumping <laughs> from 1998 it's <laughs> um, an impressive knowledge yeah uh, but uh, yeah that's what I found so interesting about singing yeah. really was it, there's there's no hiding place um, let's go back to the idea of time zones because uh, you've just spent a lot of time in Australia I have with a giant ape That yes. will be filled in later on by a computer. Um, and you're going back there again for Thor Ragnarok. Um, so I have to ask, Australia is the most dangerous country on the planet. It is. It is filled with things that can kill you. Yeah. Including half the cast of Neighbours. So <laughs> do you have any defense mechanisms in place? Have you seen any snakes when you were over I there? I saw snakes. There were snakes. Oh my there God. were snakes in the forest. There are rainforests in, Queens in Queensland. Mm. Um not far from on on Mount Tambourine in just off the Gold Coast, and we I was running through the jungle, the forest, the rainforest, the jungle, <laughs> um, one night, and we were we were shooting splits, and I was with uh, Brie Larson and John C. Riley, and Corey Hawkins, and the the video monitors for the producers that the producers were looking at, what like Alex Garcia. Uh, the producer at Legendary looked down and, and the leaves were moving. <laughs> and it was one of the most dangerous snakes in Australia. Um, and uh, it, was qu it was quickly removed by our, our sort of um, our safety yeah. officer. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's quite, quite scary. And then also the Gold Coast is an ex one of the most beautiful coasts I've ever seen. The, the sea, the Pacific is so blue mm. and the beaches are so long and so wide and so white. And you think, my God, this is paradise. Why is no one swimming? <laughs> and um, I saw Chris Hemsworth down in, because he lives not far from there. He lives about two hours away. And I went down and I was like, dude, so why, why does no one swim? And he was like, mate, it's really sharky. Um, and I was like, surely that's just an old wives tale. Like you've got more chance of being... Um, you know, hit by a bus or yeah. or in a car accident. And he was like, actually, no. Like, statistics are recently, like, you go in the water, you might get eaten by a shark. Oh, my God. Nevertheless, he is undeterred and he <laughs> continues to surf in those shark-infested waters. Um, but uh, I didn't I didn't join him on that excursion. Even the word has reached the sharks, do not mess with Thor. <laughs> yeah. It's that simple. But they're yeah. everywhere. Jellyfish, sharks, birds the size of men. It's a dangerous it's, world, Chris. Yeah, it's, but you're going back. It's exciting. And uh, <laughs> uh, don't worry, I'm not going to press for any, any plot points on Ragnarok. Uh, I wouldn't uh, tell you anyway. I, I, I believe you wouldn't. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know... Not out of anything personal. <laughs> no, of course not. Yeah. Uh, but in terms of your meticulous preparation, you're, you're about to play this character again, Loki, yeah. for the, the fourth time. Uh, what sort of preparation do you do at this point? I mean, do you know this guy inside out? What's It's interesting. Um, I, re I just read the script, and, and there is there interesting... And how does it end? I just... <laughs> Well, um, <laughs> they just Thor goes surfing in uh, <laughs> in Queensland, Australia. Yeah, it's kind of great. The costume. I mean, you think you've seen that costume everywhere, but actually, 
the way the cake billows as he's, as this this the, as the wave is breaking <laughs> it's pretty amazing you um, you would not believe this but uh, we actually recorded the main podcast today so uh, believe it or not, there was a discussion of Thor's buttocks on the uh, on the main podcast. Oh, really? Uh, so you you've tied in nicely to that without really knowing that you were you were doing so. Okay, but uh, nice. but thank you for that. Yeah. Uh, so 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 it ends with Thor being eaten by sharks. It's a it's a, it's a bit of a, a bit of a twist. Oh well well, <laughs> okay. I'm gonna, spoiler alert. He he uses a shark as a surfboard. So because. Thor has that power and um, so it's actually he gets on top of the back of a shark and starts yep. using the shark to surf yeah yeah. I'm just waiting to see the stories that are picked up from this <laughs> as a result <laughs> Thor surfs on yeah. shark in Thor yeah. Ragnarok uh, but yeah, sorry back to your preparation so I'm going to read some of the some of the comics around the Ragnarok storyline and I think there's also some unfinished business that we can be it's going to be quite interesting to play out mm-hmm. you know Thor the Dark World ends with a particular image. It does. And uh, I think people will be curious to see what happens next. But I do feel like I know, I know him pretty well. But I, the bit I can't account for is how it's going to feel when I'm on set in costume, you know, as Loki again after... Because I really haven't... The last time I, I shot proper footage of Loki, um, Comic-Con accepted, was in, 20, <laughs> was in 2012. So it's yeah. a long time ago. It's been four years. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Using my basic arithmetic, <laughs> it's, been, it's been four years. Yeah. And obviously you went straight in from Thor to the Avengers, so you were still very much in that Loki yeah, I mind did space. Yeah, I, I kind of... I also remember going from... Thor came out in May of 2011, and mm. within a week I was on the set of Avengers. Oh so I was, I had, had, was, I'd been talking about him, and then... I was back in the zone. So, mm. when I say Loki mind space, I don't mean that you go around. You're not method in that way. You don't go around trying to take over everywhere you, <laughs> you go when you're filming. Yeah, I yeah. don't. No, no. Uh, I remember on set of Avengers watching you using Loki staff as a guitar. Did I really? You did. Yeah. You got a better memory than I do. I wrote it down. <laughs> okay, <laughs> it was in the feature, so <laughs> it all works out. <laughs> then it all comes back to guitar yeah, in, 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 the, the end. in the end as well. Yeah. So you you said early on you might play us out. Okay, so this is the... Which song would you like to hear? There's a number of songs in the, in the opening the chord of E. Uh-huh. There's uh, Honky Tonkin, there's Move It On Over. There is uh, um, Long Gone Lonesome Blues. I'm So Lonesome I Could Cry. Oh, that's a good one to end. Yeah? That's a good one, yeah. You want that? Okay. Let's go for that. Oh, there we go. Perfect. Look at that. This is Tom Hiddleston in concert, live from the Emperor Podcast. Hear that lonesome whippoorwill He sounds too blue to fly The midnight train is whining low I'm so lonesome I could cry Amazing. Amazing. Tom Hiddleston, thank you. Thank you so Pleasure, much. as always. Cheers, okay. man. Thank you. There we go. That was T. Hitty. Very, very pleasant, and he was wonderful, as, as ever. Tremendous. Tremendous. What a tremendous interview. What a tremendous guy. Uh, let's talk about movie news now. Hollywood did his usual thing last week, and it waited until the Empire podcast was up, and then went tee-hee-hee, and then just unleashed a whole bunch of stuff. Yeah. So should we talk about some of that, and then we'll move into the stuff that's more 
That's Top a really good idea. Yeah, I think you should. Um, Phil, you're a big Alicia Vikander fan, aren't you? I, I, very, I, I am a very big Alicia Vikander fan. She's a fantastically talented actress. Um, and soon to add leaping and adventuring to her skill set. And grunting, uh, that's important, right? As I understand, grunting is important grunting for this particular character. She's appearing as Lara Croft in Tomb Raider, the Tomb Raider reboot that we thought potentially Daisy Ridley was going to be involved in. She was kind of linked to it. Um, uh, but no, uh, it was announced last Friday that Alicia Vikander is taking that role, mm. which is a interesting kind of move for her, I think, into a more kind of action-y franchise. She's done a lot of period work, obviously. She's done some robot work in Ex Machina. She's doing some espionage work in Jason Bourne. But we haven't really seen her kind of running and, and grunting yet. No. No, we haven't. But we will in this reboot, which... I don't know. They're, they're, they're promising is going to be is going to kind of reignite this incredibly popular, but slightly sort of outmoded gaming franchise for a new generation. Mm. And I don't know really what that could mean, because it seems like a fairly sort of ageless premise. Um, what do you think? I think it's uh, it's interesting. I don't, I don't know. I mean, it, someone pointed out because I th- uh, that uh, Angelina Jolie signed up for Lara Croft immediately after, almost immediately after winning the Oscar for Girl Interrupted, and. History's repeating itself this time around, which is, which is fun. You get the Oscar and you go, wee Now I'm going to raid tombs and have have a bit of fun. Yeah, for booty. Um, <laughs> she's uh, she's a little bit more sort of small and delicate than I would have necessarily guessed for Lara Croft, but that could work to the character's advantage. And I'm kind of guessing that they're going to take the tone more from the most recent and very well received, very well reviewed game, which mm. is a little bit more kind of psychologically interesting I guess than than perhaps the early incarnations were which could be cool and this does mean that you know of course she's not acknowledging that she's in a relationship with Michael Fassbender who knows maybe they're both playing a long running gag on us Um, but they would both be starring in video game adaptations good point maybe that's what Friday nights are like around the end the fast bed of a I mean, household. This is it. Maybe we think they're having a fabulous, glamorous, gorgeous time, and in fact, they're just sitting there playing video games like the rest mm-hmm. of us. So, absolutely. There you go. Of course, in my case, it's free cell, which doesn't really lend itself to adaptations. <laughs> is that the card game? Yes. You still play that? I, I've. Uh, I'm. I'm currently having a relapse. I've downloaded it again. Not judging you, but who would you see in the movie adaptation? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it would be thrilling. It would be somebody sat there for four hours just staring at a screen. So you'd need someone who could really bring life to that situation and sigh occasionally, maybe tut when they get something wrong. Sounds a bit like Eye in the Sky too. It's it's a lot like, okay, so Helen Mirren. Helen Mirren in Free Cell. Phil, what, what video games do you play? He's still holding out hope mm. for the video game adaptation of Battleship Potemkin. <laughs> Is it coming? You sunk by Battleship Potemkin. <laughs> oh, if only. <laughs> that would be amazing. You're too busy playing at home with Federico Feliney. That's correct. I never get the pronunciation that right. I always have to think about it. Um, yeah, this is interesting news. I thought, it's directed by Roar Uthog, uh, or Uthog, uh, who is a Norwegian director whose uh, disaster movie, The Wave, has yet to come out in this country. But I've seen the trailer. It looks very, very good. Sort of Roland Emmerich special effects allied to a very matter of fact Scandinavian uh, mindset. So it, it could mm. be good indeed. Um, this has any ramifications for Uncharted? Possibly. I mean, they've been trying to make that film for I know. years, haven't they? Have. they? This feels yeah. like it sort of occupies the same kind of space a yeah. little bit. And this one's got Graham King behind it, who's obviously a bit of an Uber producer. So you'd expect it to happen pretty quickly. Absolutely. Um, Vikander's schedule is packed. 
Speaking of packed schedules, John Bernthal is going to have a packed schedule pretty, pretty soon because uh, the Punisher has returned. A couple of weeks ago on the Daredevil Sporter Special podcast, we had a conversation about whether the Punisher could sustain his own series. I ventured that possibly not, uh, even though I loved the, that iteration of the character and I love the Punisher, I wasn't sure whether the character would stretch to 13 episodes on Netflix. But Netflix say, damn it, we're going to do it. We're going to do it anyway. You won't care what you think, Hewitt. We're going to do it anyway. Uh, what, what do we make of this? I mean, I thought the character was great, so I'm kind of intrigued to see what they do with him. Um, I wonder if they're going to have to sort of pair him up or team him up with someone who's slightly less... um, Grumpy. (laughs) Grumpy, yes. Um, Not that grumpy is bad. Grumpy is good. It suits him. But um, you've got to wonder if if he needs someone to kind of bounce off and talk to other than just a dog. So, um, so yeah, it'll be intriguing. But... um, but yeah, I mean, who doesn't want to see more of that character? I thought he was great in Daredevil. Agreed. Uh, I think I think this uh, this season will have Microchip. His, yes, his his sort of right hand man, his tech guy. Mm. Their relationship is very complex in the comics, um, and that that role could be cast in any number of ways. In the comics, Microchip is traditionally a fat, sweaty uh, guy, but you know, it could be you could do anything with that. Uh, so at the end of oh, Daredevil, not to give too much away, but we see Frank retrieve a, a disc with micro written on it. So it, it might go in that way. But it's interesting because he worked so well with Daredevil in that series. And so far, the Marvel Netflix shows don't really seem to have shown much interest in getting the heroes together. They seem to be holding it back for the Defenders, mm-hmm. which we know will start shooting at the end of the year. What I want to know is whether the Punisher will now be part of that group or whether he's going to be off doing his own thing meeting new interesting people and, and killing them and then the defenders are doing their things as well. So He might be an occasional ally. We might see him in that series but not necessarily in the main lineup sort of a thing. Mm. Am I right in thinking that Jigsaw or the Jigsaw is is someone that they're suggesting might be the, the sort of his nemesis mm. in his spin-off? One of the big Punisher nemesis. Interesting looking character. Yes. Um, doesn't have a piece missing unlike most Jigsaw. <laughs> He has, many, he has many pieces missing. Just, well, yeah, different yeah. internal pieces. Yeah. Um, this is a, there's a lot of... I've just finished Daredevil season two and enjoyed it thoroughly. Mm-hmm. But it seems to be sort of expanding and expanding and you kind of almost wish it would start to taper a little bit. More and more, you know, you've got, obviously, um, you've got Luke Cage coming. Um, you've got Jessica Jones coming for a second season. I guess a third season of Daredevil. The Punisher spinoff. Iron Fist. Iron Fist. Yeah. I mean, there's only so many people in Hell's Kitchen. Soon it'll be uh, everyone. I mean, what, I, I don't I know. I think there's I, more than five, though. I think we're probably Yeah, I know, right. but I mean, it's... it's Yeah, I, I worry that it might become a bit formulaic, is my only thinking. I would they, hope not. They feel like, at this point, they are following a template, to my mind. Um, I would hope not. Although, having said that, I haven't finished Jessica Jones. I still haven't finished it. Um, this uh, I like it. I I find it perfectly agreeable. But I just there's something about it. I just can't find. I don't find compelling. Um, although I thought I thought the show was different enough from Daredevil. Yeah. And Luke Cage, from everyone everyone's saying, it will be a, a very different show again. And Iron Fist will have all sorts of mystical malarkey in it. So, uh, you know, I think hopefully they'll they'll stand on their own two feet. Um, but we we shall see. Yeah. We shall yeah. see. Uh, but that was the news that kind of kind of broke last Friday. And some other news has broken during the week, including this. Uh, have you seen this very interesting news about Ophelia, a sort of different take on Hamlet with Daisy Ridley? It's a bit interesting, it, isn't it? It's it's Hamlet from Ophelia's point of view. Yeah. Am I right in thinking? 
Yeah, no, I have to confess, I haven't um, read the novel on which this is based. So it was a novel obviously spinning off from the play um, by Lisa Klein. It's being adapted by Semi Chellas uh, and it'll be directed by Clara McCarthy. Uh, that's what we know. Uh, but it's an interesting twist. Obviously, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead mm. works. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a there's precedent for te- retelling Hamlet from a different point of view. For God, uh, We definitely know that. It's a bit interesting, though, because she's... You know, not his best character, I would have said. So it'll be intriguing to see how they do this. And as I say, I haven't read the book, so it may already be clear to everyone else and, and work brilliantly. Um, but I'll definitely seek it out. That sounds quite interesting. When you but yeah, she's not his best character. Is that because she's a bit passive? It's because or... she she goes mad for you know it, it's it's like the sent into madness is quite hard to write convincingly. I feel like, and that was not his most convincing. I think the Macbeths it it works a lot better. Many of his other characters, it works a lot better, but she she's just not treated very well by either the writer or the characters in the play. I thought so. Yeah, she's not she's not the most compelling Shakespearean heroine to me, but I look forward to be, being proved wrong on that. Good test yeah. for Daisy Ridley. Mm. Yeah, very much so, and a, a good part for her, I guess. Does that mean Naomi Watts will be Gertrude? Yeah. That's, so that's, that's kind of interesting. That's what it means. So yeah. I wonder how, uh, how in- integral to that story will, will Hamlet be. Well, the interesting thing, if anybody watched Shakespeare Live the other weekend, uh, the interesting thing will be seeing which which word he emphasises in the to be or not to be speech. Does anyone ever emphasise the or? Yes, it, it, this was the joke of the sketch the other weekend. It was which which line to emphasise. So Tim Minchin emphasised the or. <laughs> um, and then you had uh, Cumberbatch, Tennant, Dame Judy, um, Prince Charles... All recommending different words. How that do they not see they should, it's, it's an amazing, amazing sketch. If, if anybody else hasn't watched it, it is, a, I believe, online. Uh-huh. Um, I'm not sure what it's called, but if you look up "to be or not to be Shakespeare Live" or uh-huh. any of those names, you will get it, and it's it's really good fun. That's amazing. Uh, Christopher Walken as Hamlet would emphasise all the words. Yeah. So that mm. would be a, an interesting direction. Which did he to go. play but, Hamlet? I have a feeling he played Hamlet back in the day. He probably did. Not on screen. He probably did. Everyone worth their salt's played Hamlet at some point. I Arnie. have, certainly. Yeah, Arnie. To be or yes, not to be. <laughs> not to be. Not to be. But looking forward to that. And of course, this might be the film that uh, if Daisy Ridley uh, was considering this or Tomb Raider, because remember at the Empire Awards, she, she did speak to me on uh, on their live Periscope thing and she said that Tomb Raider was a possibility, but there were some other possibilities uh, as well. And this might have been what she was referring to. Yeah. Who knows? But uh, exciting. And uh, clearly she's going to try and show that she has other strings to her bow besides um, uh, being Rey Light in Star Wars. Lightsaber strings. Indeed. Uh, and speaking of which, uh, John Boyega this week uh, and uh, uh, was confirmed as uh, being part of the new Old Fic season. So yes, we're uh, getting tickets, myself and my friend. Uh, what's that? It's, it's Wysek, isn't it? Uh, that sounds like a way that it could possibly be the right way to pronounce it. A Wojciech or... or or I'm completely out of my depth here on, the, on this one, but what's, what is it? Do you it, know what it, No, I don't, don't know anything about it. I just saw John Boyega and figured that sounds fun. Yes. I'm going to say Wojcik. Uh He's going to be starring at the, uh, the Old Fic, uh, and it's going to be an adaptation of the German playwright George Buchner's work by Skins and Harry Potter and the Cursed Child co-writer Jack Thorne. Uh, and it's all very, very interesting, and uh, that'll be, I think, later in the year. Uh, and speaking of Jack Thorne, Harry Potter and the Cursed Child... Uh, the the front of the Palace Theatre, which is not too far away from from uh, Empire HQ, is now fully displaying the Harry Potter and the Cursed Child uh, 
paraphernalia, which is all very, very exciting. Yeah. Have you got your tickets, Chris? Uh, well, I didn't have tickets, Helen. And then uh, a lovely chap that I know via Twitter called Ben Cameron, who's a wonderful illustrator, uh, he has uh, written to my rescue and he's offered me uh, his spare ticket. So I'm going yeah, to go with, with Ben. So th- thank you very much for that, Ben. You've got your tickets, obviously. You've got I have. Your, yeah. You're sorted out. It's going to be interesting to see how that one turns out. Yeah, I think everyone's quite excited about it, so fingers crossed for that. A great cast, so mm. it should be good. This is all very London-centric, though, Chris. Have we got no other international uh, movie news? We do. Okay. We do, we've got tons of movie news. So uh, Josh Boone, who is the director of The Fault in Our Stars, and he will soon be directing New Mutants, which is another X-Men spin-off for Fox. Uh, yesterday he took to Instagram, and uh, we think he revealed the lineup. Uh, for the New Mutants movie. Uh, wow. So uh, he posted a, a series of images yesterday that suggested the team will be uh, Magic, who's the sister of Colossus. That uh, we also will have Wolfsbane, who is sort of a wolfy lady. And that's the role that Maisie Williams has been linked with, I believe. Mm, interesting. Um, Mirage, who is a Native American character with the ability to create illusions. Cannonball, one of the the key new mutants for me. He was uh, Sam Guthrie. He's uh, one of the, he can propel himself at incredible speed. With we saw him briefly in uh, Days of Future Past. We did. We did. Was he at the beginning? Yep. Is that him at the beginning? Yeah. I've forgotten that. Sunspot. Oh, Sunspot. Yeah. Or am I thinking of Cannibal? You're no, thinking, both. Cannibal's is the one who both? flies. No, I think it was just a mutant, wasn't it, at the beginning? But it was. I'm pretty sure Cannibal they all had names. Is, Cannibal. It would be new to the. Uh, New to the uh, the X Men cinematic universe, I believe Sunspot, of course, was in Days of Future Past, uh, in the future, in the twenty twenty three section. So whether they'll use the same actor or whether it's all going to be new, who knows? And then Warlock, who can change shape and is a is a wonderfully bizarre character in the comics. And there's rumours as well that Storm will be involved, Alexander Ship Storm, and uh, James McAvoy's Professor Charles Xavier will be a major part of the film as well, now that he's baldy with his wheelchair like Professor X from the comics. So it's all very, very exciting. What do we think? I quite like uh, uh, Ilyana um, mm. because I thought she was cool in that whole backstory about her getting lost in the demon dimension and then coming back with the magic sword and stuff was was a pretty cool backstory so I'm kind of intrigued mm. by her um, and Warlock is is a demented demented character that makes no sense so I'm thrilled to see that and see how they how they manage that one so uh, yeah it's an intriguing lineup um, you know four mm. boys two girls you know standard mm-hmm. I guess yeah uh, beef, I think uh, maybe the offensive apocalypse which were Hopefully, seeing soon, mm-hmm. we'll we'll set that one up. And uh, just a couple of other things to talk about before we get into the reviews. Uh, Russell Crowe is yeah. in talks to join the Mummy reboot. Uh, so Universal are are trying to uh, launch a shared universe of Universal monsters, as they did, of course, way back in the day, with Dracula and Frankenstein, Wolfman, and all that lot. Um, and so Tom Cruise, we know, is starring in the film right now, which is being directed by Alex Kurtzman. And there's apparently a role in there that is. Dr. Jekyll-esque mm. um, and Russell Crowe has been offered it after Tom Hardy apparently turned it down or didn't quite see eye to eye uh, so it's interesting so clearly they're going the route of we will introduce this character in this film and then if you like this character we will introduce him in another film although apparently this this is only a deal for one film really? apparently really? Mm. Mm. I wonder mm-hmm. if he's a bad guy but then again the bad guy would be the mummy 
Well, Bad Woman. Yeah, bad that's woman Sophia Batella. Sophia Batella, yeah. So. Interesting. Yeah, interesting. I mean, he can certainly, you know, play both nice and terrifyingly angry. Yes, he can. So rumour has it. So uh, <laughs> I, I feel like that could work. Um, and it's actually always kind of good to see Russell Crowe on, on screen because say what you like about him, he's, he's pretty dependable, actually. Absolutely. I can't wait to see The Nice Guys, which will be out here next month. Helen, I don't know whether you did it deliberately or whether it was an accidental segue. Was it deliberate? Because if it's deliberate, no. I'm applauding you. That's amazing. She's been to my well Segway Academy. It's like you've read... <laughs> <laughs> I ride a Segway every day. Uh, because we have some very exciting Nice Guys news uh, coming up, we have a very, very special... Uh, it's a live Q&A. Uh, it will become a podcast special on May 18th in London. Sorry, uh, anyone who doesn't live in or around London. It is at the Gate Cinema in uh, London. We're going to have a screening of the Nice Guys followed by a Q&A with Shane Black, the great Shane Black, the writer and director, and Joel Silver, the producer who has worked with Shane Black on some of the great action movies of the 80s and 90s, and of course Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, uh, and now this as well. So, now you know what's happening. Uh, tickets are free. It's a free screening and a free Q&A. Uh, details will be put up on the Empire website. Uh, they'll be sent out in the newsletter as well. Uh, tomorrow on Friday so look out for that it's going to be very very exciting indeed uh, and uh, we'll figure out how you, people can apply for tickets so look out for that but they'll be available as of Monday uh, so that's very very cool uh, okay so we have another guest that's sure a, that's enough of the uh, the movie news nonsense. that's a two guests Chris so we have two guests yeah alright let's have two guests because uh, uh, the first guest is Hugh Grant and he made his debut in the podcast a while ago, wasn't it? A couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. Then he spoke to Helen again for The Man From U.N.C.L.E. And he oh, loved the podcast oh, yeah. so much, he insisted on coming back to talk about his new movie, Stephen Frears, Florence Foster Jenkins, and he brought his co-star with him. Now, we were delighted when he said that because it's Meryl Streep. We all love Meryl Streep. We're going to have Meryl Streep back in the podcast. That's, that's great fun. Then he said, no, it's not Meryl Streep. It's uh, Simon Helberg. And we were like, oh, that's great because we love the Big Bang Theory as well. So uh, that's, that's, that's heavy on the podcast as well. We were just as delighted. We sent Phil along to speak to both of them. And they were both delightful. Before you listen to the podcast, the interview with uh, Hugh Grant and Simon Helberg, uh, I am reliably informed that the audio may not be up to our usual <laughs> gang-busting standards. Uh, there may be some issues, especially with Hugh Grant, whose microphone was a, very, was a bit low. But uh, hopefully you will get through it and enjoy this very enjoyable and delightful interview. Welcome to the Empire Podcast, Mr. Hugh Grant and Mr. Simon Helberg, here to talk about Florence Foster Jenkins. Thank you. <laughs> yes, yes, very happy to be here. Thanks for taking the time. I just wanted to ask you about your first sort of your first scene together. Uh, Hugh, you play Sinclair Bayfield, and uh, Simon, you play Cosme McMoon, two of the yes. finest character names I think you're going to see on the big screen this year. <laughs> yeah, that might be um, true. In, in your sort of introduction, I mean, I'm not sure if it was shot chronologically or, or what, but when when we first see the two of you together, you raise a brilliantly whimsical wry eyebrow when you announce Cosme's name. Oh, that, yes. <laughs> um, which I thought was a bit rich coming from someone called Sinclair Bayfield. But <laughs> Yeah, how dare you? That was deep into shooting when we really did that right that was like towards towards the end towards the end <laughs> yeah so so we had we had already we knew each other's idiosyncrasies is that fair to say yeah <laughs> do, do you remember your first scene together on the film did you do a lot of rehearsing before you started shooting or there was no rehearsing <laughs> surprised us by not liking any kind of rehearsal or even discussion of yes the character script 
plot film. <laughs> Remember we ran it. We, he said, you know, let me hear the lines. And we ran it. And he said, no, no. And he wanted to rewrite the whole thing. Do you remember? He, we, we, st- we stood in that kitchen. The first scene was at the big party when I show up unexpectedly. And uh, Hugh's character walks in to the kitchen where I'm sort of pacing aimlessly and tries to see how much I know about him and yes. Kathleen and kind of what's what. That was my first day. That was his first day. And we did a little line-up rehearsal without cameras. And I thought, you can't get much better acting than that. We were oh, marvellous. We were we marvellous. We turned to Stephen and said, what do you think? And he said, bloody boring. Boring. Rewrite the whole thing. I don't want yeah. you to do this. Yeah. Where's the fucking right? Yeah, that is pretty true. It was scary. That was the first moment. And he kept saying how long the scene was, how long and how slow it was. And we sort of said, but you're going to edit this, right? I mean, it's not in-camera editing. You can, if you don't like the pace. No, no, no. And then they brought the writer out. And I think we ended up doing exactly what was on the page. We sort of convinced him that it was... Stephen a biscuit. It was kind of that. Well, he was... he. for Christ's sake, someone gave him a biscuit. Yeah. Because I know him a little bit. Yeah, okay. Point in the afternoon where you've got to stuff sugar down his gullet. I mean, I'm interested to hear you say that just on a slight tangent because I've, I've read before you talking about, I think, Ken Russell and how he would potentially have a French lunch, this how you described it, <laughs> beautifully, beautifully euphemistically. And then in the afternoon, things would go off in a slightly different direction. I guess as an actor, you get a sense of when a director's, you know, in a slightly different headspace or a slightly different zone. Yeah. Directors of a certain vintage at a certain time of day have to be treated quite yeah. <laughs> what's the danger to, what's the magic hour I mean, the... Ken Russell yeah he was a lovely man and a great genius but he you know I remember that afternoon saying to him I had to do a scene where I had to pick up a large sword and cut a woman in half uh, as you do in a Ken Russell film <laughs> and I, I said yeah, this shot doesn't feel right Ken the way I'm doing it it just doesn't feel right and he said fuck how it fucking feels do it how I sh- fucking show you you c- <laughs> Which is not from a classical book of film directing. <laughs> but see, it's charming when you say it like yeah. that. My gosh, we should have been should have been more thankful. I really did love working with Stephen, but it did take a moment to understand the what was. I just you think you look at his movies and you think this guy must be all over Everything. this. Yeah, and in some way he did. You know, he did tear apart the scene, the writing, and the work that we had done in that one rehearsal and I thought oh he is all but then it then it was actually he was just hands from that point on he just I don't know it, he was very trusting to the point of where I had no trust in myself because he trusted me so much or I, he gave a lot of power right to us stop trusting us so much yeah What's wrong with you? and but yet I do feel like he he's visionary mm. it's I don't know but there's not I always felt like yes. there'd be more micromanaging Mr. Yes. yes whatever your expectation yes whoever you are from wherever you come from life he likes to mess with your expectations so if you're a needy actor mm. needing a bit of help you say what do you think i don't know don't ask me it was the director no, I don't. right no, I right it was yeah. a lot of that yeah and in a way if you look at his films and this one included it's full of mischief is there's a mischievous tone it's sort of saying do you think this is a comedy or do you think this is sadness? Mm. Do you think this is serious and um, i begin to get the picture now when you talk to him about the um, Filmmakers he reveres, people like Nick Rogue and Powell and Pressburger and Hitchcock, they're all mischievous bastards. <laughs> yes. Want to mess with you. Yes. And, and he's very much of that heritage. Hitchcock famously talked about treating his actors like cattle, um, which I think he had his tongue in his cheek when he said that. Mm. But um, he, again, liked to sort of subvert, I imagine, 
you know, the experience and keep you off your toes. But in this case, I can't think of a director who could have handled this material as adroitly as, as Stephen Frears, because I can imagine that this film about an aspiring opera singer who's really not very good and yet to maintain your respect for her throughout as the one character who's perhaps not got an agenda beautiful sort of achievement of tone I felt was Meryl Streep's sort of involvement in that making sure that her character wasn't ridiculed um, no I think that part of the mischief thing is that everyone's slightly off balance all the time Maybe that's very yeah, yeah, we're sobbing each other's arms. <laughs> yeah, remember when you saw me pacing the first day and you said, you might be the only person I've ever met more neurotic than me. Um, uh, yeah, so <laughs> we snorted rescue remedy. I think we were all very aware that we did not want to comment on this too much or ridicule it too much, I, right? I mean, I think it was all about making sure that we believed the love between your two characters and that I wasn't in it selfishly and that there, you know, while there, we all benefited, I think the characters all kind of got to benefit in some way. It wasn't f- totally altruistic, but I don't think it was an exploitative, you know, deception. Yeah. I think it really comes down to the question of whether you're laughing at these people who are pretty freakish and odd and deluded, or whether you're laughing with them. And I don't think it's even as simple as to say that we've made people laugh with them. There's a bit of both. Yes. Simultaneously. Yes. That's very frears. Mm-hmm. Yes. And that's the sort of thing I liked in the script when I read it, because it sort of um, plays with your expectations. You don't quite know what genre you're in. No. There's moments of scruple. I'm not sure that the audience is excused from that process either. You know, you feel a bit like, what side are we laughing at or with? Who do we... You're laughing near. I think truly. You really are. That really is like the perfect example of laughing near someone. It could be the new tagline for the movie. You'll laugh near this film. Yeah. It's very, very funny. And the chemistry between the three of you and sometimes David Haig scenes are fantastic. I love that scene. It's the Four Weddings Sinclair St. Clair <laughs> reunion we've been waiting for, really, that one. <laughs> Weird, isn't it? Yeah, it was, did you have no, any... We, we did another film in the meantime, in between. He was in Two Weeks Notice, played my brother. So you've exhausted the Four Weddings reminiscences by that point, or...? <laughs> yes, but it always feels cosy. Someone turns up who you've made a film with that turned out well. It's like a talisman. <laughs> you know, this film is stuffed with brilliant British actors doing their best American accents. How do they get on there? I think pretty well. I think the tone, the Freer's tone and the 40s-ness of the movie lets people get away with a little more. You know, there was that heightened way of talking back then, too. People had that kind of accent. And so there, there are occasions, I think, where you, you feel that. But that was the way people, I think, spoke in the 40s in New York. There was a bit of an Anglo-sized thing. So, yeah. but uh, in theatrical stuff. Right? right. So I think you can hear that kind of thing sometimes, the way that people are talking. And that is sort of how they spoke so I, I think it worked it worked well you guys are good actors you you Brits <laughs> you keep, keep it up I think it was largely a mischievous decision to shoot a New York film in London mm, that's interesting so, oh, come on this is a bit silly why aren't we in New York and I don't even think it was a budget issue I think it was just Frizz being mischievous yeah he does like to kind of keep you a little off balance that's you true. Like to be too far from a certain cafe in Notting Hill. That's right. I, there were days where, why are we rushing? It's like, well, Stephen really wants to stop at this tea place on the way to. Uh, you guys were going to Glasgow, I think. We were shooting in Liverpool. We were rushing, and I remember they said, "Well, there's a tea. There's a certain tea shop." His priority is making the film great, but then you do hear something like that. The first story I ever heard about Stephen was in the eighties, and he was auditioning people for some film, and. Uh, was a huge Irish actor called Daryl O'Malley went in to see him and, and Stephen said at one point during the meeting uh, oh, just shock me at which point it was the wrong person to ask Daryl O'Malley <laughs> 
Stevens' brand new video recorder machine, which was a big thing, an expensive piece of equipment in those days, and threw it out at the fourth floor. Window. Oh my God, that's w- wow! That's the story, but I haven't even checked. I've never forgot to ask. Oh, him. we got to ask him. Yeah, <laughs> and he did. He didn't get the part, probably. I don't even know the end of the story. Oh my! We'll follow that one up. Find out. Find out what happened to him. Meryl came on the podcast last year. I'm not sure whether you'd started filming or not, but she talked about her relish, the opportunity to fuck opera up. It was her words, not ours. And she does, to a point. I mean, but there's, you know, in Florence is not necessarily terrible. She's almost good. She's almost competent, which is where a lot of the comedy lies. From your point of view, the first time you saw this great dame of cinema performing or dressed as Brunhilde, you see her early in the movie. Is there an appropriate facial expression to pull? Do you need to show respect or, or can you just laugh? We definitely did laugh. I mean, yeah. we, we would have done, I would have done totally laughing even if it hadn't been funny. But it, it was <laughs> genuinely funny. But I mean, as to the question, what face do you make in the present Meryl Streep? I still have really cracked. Yeah. It's yeah. all very well to be famous. I've met lots of famous people. I've done films with famous people. Yeah. Then there's a sort of icon thing, which is. Just, it's different. When, when they've been there all your life, and it feels a bit like meeting Jesus or something. I found her very upon my fir- the first meeting, which I you know I was terrified. I was in New York, and it was to play this music too, which was a whole other absolutely horrifying thing to step into. But I I was immediately disarmed by her. I don't feel like she carries not a crown. Or, yeah, that so be more normal. because I think she knows that you're thinking this thing that yeah. you're that you are meeting Meryl Streep I think she knows that that's what you're thinking and so she immediately kind of calls it out and puts you at ease a little bit she never had a grand moment in no eight weeks. no I had a few <laughs> I had to polish his crown, so to speak. She made us a cup of tea before the interview, so there was, yes. Oh, well, see, yeah. We were a bit like, no, not worthy. <laughs> it was a Wayne's World moment. Yeah. <laughs> this film also does another lovely thing, which is that often you hear filmmakers say, we couldn't put, our screenwriters say, we couldn't get that in the film. It's just the audiences wouldn't believe it. It's too outlandish. But this film is stuffed to the gills with those moments, you know. Florence loved potato salad. There's a bathtub full of potato salad in this film. Cosme has an interest in bodybuilding, which is just yeah. a little incongruous to everything else that's happening, but really funny. Yeah. And the sandwiches. I have to ask you an age-old Empire web chat question in the old days. We used to ask everyone this. Your favorite sandwich? Oh, well, I think sun-blessed white bread. Right. Butter and marmite wrapped in bacon foil. Opened <laughs> towards the end of school-outing. <laughs> Rosmont, Roman camp. Really? So something simple. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow, okay, mine is going to have much less French in it I don't even know what he, you said at the end I just thought you were seducing me um, Although, no, this will have a, a kind of a seductive word They think they call it a, a muffaletta uh, sandwich Do you know what that is? No, I've never heard of that Okay, see, I know other languages It's like a salami and provolone And then there's like an olive tapenade and tomatoes Ordering a sandwich in America is possibly the more, most traumatic thing that can happen <laughs> <laughs> Really? Because what you just said oh, made me sweat. Yeah. <laughs> what do you want? <laughs> <laughs> Marmite? Cheese sandwich, please. Yeah. You don't say, and you don't say and open the foil at the end. And I think that would scare a butcher. Her. <laughs> and when you're done, just kiss it ever so gently. <laughs> yeah. Why are you scared, though, in, L- in, in America, generally? Are you just because you don't like... Because is, is it too simple, or is it... Well, sandwiches are much too difficult. 
just too difficult because then it's just turkey. It's just a turkey. We don't know what these things are. We don't. You don't know what turkey. <laughs> oh, okay. Arugula is complicated for us. Arugula My God. Whole wheat, multigrain. Right, because there's a lot of options. Yeah. And the gluten-free now too, and it's true. We talk a lot about cheeses, but they all come from near you guys. So I, we're just trying to sound fancy, and here we are confusing everyone. First time I went to America, checked into the hotel, and the man said behind the desk, he gave me my key, and he said, uh, and uh, how are you going to take care of your room? And I said, well, as, as well as I possibly can. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> right. No, it's, uh, there's a little traps everywhere like that. See, you guys are so, there's so much charm. I asked, uh, I called down, I said, would it be possible if someone could come up and maybe steam a couple of my uh, shirts? And then, absolutely, Mr. Helberg. Uh, well, is that immediately, Mr. Helberg, with pleasure. And I said, really, with pleasure? It's just steamy. Everything was so, yeah, is there anything else I could get? I mean, it's such a process. I, I feel like it's easier in America because they're just like, sure. <laughs> Here it's just, it's so, oh, to steam a shirt would be my joy. Yeah, so, they're very nice. I like coming here. I can't walk away, obviously, without asking a Big Bang Theory question. Okay. Um, Hugh? No. Hugh? Have you got a Big Bang Theory question? Yeah. Are you a fan of Big Bang Theory, Hugh? Don't put him on the spot. No, ask me. I don't want to see his face when you... I'm just curious. It's the 50th anniversary of Star Trek. Are you getting a lot of fans oh. coming up and wanting to talk to you about, about that as if you I always feel very bad about that because I I don't know Star Trek. I, I, I really don't. I, I And I don't even know Star Wars very well. People come up immediately and assume that I have a lot of... And I, I'm not saying I'm cool, but I, I, I might might be a little yeah i might be like not quite the typical nerd i don't okay. play video games and i i don't know but i've said this at comic-con these conventions and i i mean they boo i i feel like they, they are, <laughs> yeah you think they have undying love for you but if you say i don't really watch star trek much, it, it goes silent i think they first think you're fucking with them and then they just get then they never laughed at a thing i said for the rest of the but it's true so yeah i'm sorry to break your heart and also, lastly, Hugh, this is a very, very tenuous link, but um, in this film you have a great dance scene, which I'm assuming was entirely your idea. <laughs> and it, it brought back to mind music and lyrics, which I think is becoming a habitual thing that we like to talk to you about on the podcast. What was more sort of nerve-wracking out of filming the video for Pop Goes My Heart or the dance scene in this movie? Because that is a heck of a video, I have to say. I actually really actually like that song. Pop Goes My Heart. Yes. It's yeah. Bad, it? no. It's really good. I remember no. very well. I remember. Do you remember any of the lyrics? Thing. Yeah. I said I wasn't gonna lose my hand. <laughs> no, 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 don't look at me. That's right. Oh, right. Yeah. It's sketchy. Look at that. It is sketchy. Uh, no, I, well, I did that sequence, and in fact, most of that film on Lorazepam, which is a heavy duty tranquilizer. I thought it was a sandwich. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, heavy duty. I, I, I mean, me and any kind of rock music, pop music, I, it's, it's just two foreign things. And um, there was a, a terrible moment when I, I, I was given America's greatest young choreographer to work out how to do these kind of dance numbers. We had our first session standing in a big rehearsal room in downtown New York, and he had a big ghetto blaster, and he put some music on. He said, OK, here's how we're going to start. I'm just going to play some music, and you're just going to express yourself. Oh. So he put the music on. A nightmare. 25 minutes later, I was still staring at the Yeah, you expressed yourself just yeah. inwardly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Lorazepam and whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> that's a sandwich. Hugh Grant and Simon Helberg, thank you so much for joining us on the Empire Podcast. Yeah, it's been a thanks pleasure. for having us. Okay, let's uh, go on to the reviews section of the podcast, uh, and let's start with Florence Foster Jenkins. 
uh, which of course shares some DNA with Marguerite, which came out a few weeks ago. Helen. Right, so we are in New York uh, in in the sort of 1944, I think it's meant to be. So uh, World War II is going on, um, but we don't care about any of that. We're still living the high life with high society, led by heiress and opera lover and patroness of everyone nearby, Florence Foster Jenkins, played by Meryl Streep. Um, she is a, a very enthusiastic supporter of of the arts in general and music in particular. Um, she and her husband slash manager, former actor Sinclair Bayfield, who's played by Hugh Grant, uh, basically are, are members of every club going and, and put on sort of pageants and um, and all sorts of events. Um, but she has an artistic itch to scratch. And so she hires a new accompanist, Cosme McMoon, who's played by Simon Helberg, uh, to play piano as she takes more singing lessons and prepares for another concert uh, because she wants to share her gift with the world. The only problem is she doesn't have a gift. She has an anti-gift. She is the world's worst singer. And 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 I have to say, Streep's performance as a terrible singer, because we know she can sing. She's been in several musicals and actually done quite well. Yeah. Um, her performance as a person who cannot sing is really impressive. If you can carry a tune, to be this out of tune is amazing. And she's not just out of tune. No, no, it doesn't stop there. She's all over the place. Every Everything that you could do wrong, she does wrong. It's wonderful. Um, but she's not really aware of this because everyone is very keen to stay on her good side. Everyone uh, feels a lot of sympathy and and love for her uh, for reasons that become apparent. And, you know, they don't want to break the awful truth to her. And in particular, this is true of uh, of Hugh Grant's character, Sinclair, because he's, um, he's, he's really devoted to her in a strange way. And it is a strange relationship, and it's not an obvious one. Mm. Uh, but it's one that unfolds in, in a really surprising manner. And I think it's it's the film's great strength, to be honest, is the relationship between the two of them. Um, Simon Helberg's character is fine. He's mostly there initially for incredulous double takes. <laughs> He's um, very good at those. He is very good at those. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and <laughs> you know, as time goes on, again, he, he comes to feel some, some measure of this same regard for her. But it's uh, it's a very unlikely biopic of a very unlikely woman. But, you know... It, it's actually quite nice, I have to say. It's not going to change the world. It, it does feel a little bit like you should be watching it on the Sunday night at home with your parents. Um, but that's not always a bad thing. And, uh, and for what it is, it, it's really handsomely done. Does you have to combat this urge to run and get your parents when you're watching it? You do, don't you? It's powerful. Yeah. <laughs> you just want to go, come and have a look at this. You'll love this. You will love this, uh, Mum and Dad. It, I really enjoyed it. I mean, I think Stephen Frears is... Um, really reliable mm. he's very good with the tone of this because it's very sweet on 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 the surface and a bit of a souffle but it's also got a slightly peppery undercurrent like everyone's kind of in a weird way using this woman oh, yeah. for their own ends even Sinclair Bayfield yeah. even Hugh Grant's character but that's a, what in, that's what's interesting yeah. isn't it because on one hand there seems to be genuine devotion on the other hand he's absolutely living off her oh totally and i think the film tackles that stuff yeah. you know it doesn't brush it under the carpet it's a bit like here are the paradoxes of the situation of he tucks her into bed each night and is devoted to her, but then he goes off and and, and uh, sees his mistress yeah. in, in a flat that she's paying for. So you know, paid, it paid is, by it, lovely Rebecca Ferguson. Rebecca Ferguson, yeah, she never really gets mentioned in this movie, but she's no, very she good um, on the on the sort of slightly on the periphery because it's very much Meryl and Hughes' movie. I really enjoyed Simon Helberg, um, 
and uh, it's got lots of lovely little kind of scenes and mm. lots of moments that will make you chuckle. How versatile Stephen Frears. He's, he's amazing, yeah. isn't he? He'll bring out a film, maybe like a programme which doesn't quite work, and then he'll do something completely different and very, very quickly as well. Yes. Um, he's a so gruff man, but if you yes. ask him what attracts him to things, he'll be like, well, it was interesting, wasn't it? Um, I think he just <laughs> yeah. sees something in, in it, and I think what it is that he sees in a project is what he brings to the screen every single time. Yeah. Um, and so when he says, I was interested in this, um, he, I think he was, in this one, he's interested in, the, in those kind of paradoxes, but also... It's just a funny story about someone, weirdly about Florence Foster Jenkins. David Bowie always cited her as someone that he he had her record of her playing at Carnegie Hall, um, which he loved mm. for whatever reason. I'm not entirely sure what it was. It wasn't the musical virtuosity, but just her spirit and what she brought to the music. And uh, her cool. record was a huge bestseller at the time. Yeah, yeah. Believe it or not. I know. I mean, it's not just that she doesn't hit the notes. <laughs> it's that thing of it's that um, Morecambe and Wise thing of hitting all the right notes, just not necessarily in the right order. But also, she says all the words wrongly. Like she mispronounces all the English word, all the German words, and the English words so terribly. She just everything just ends up mangled. But it's uh, it's very funny and also quite touching. Yeah. Uh, so so we give it three stars. Three stars. Yeah, but it's a very warm, affectionate three. Yeah. Yeah. You sound way more up with it than three stars. Yeah. Uh, so a big warm hug of a three stars. Three stars for Florence Foster Jenkins. I mean, you're uh, not a patch on her, Chris. No. This this is after Autotune. <laughs> Believe Whoa. it or not. Uh, so next up we have another musical biopic. This is I Saw the Light, which tells the tale of the great. Hank Williams, uh, one of the great country and western singers, uh, played by our guest, one of our guests this week, T. Hitty. Yeah. Uh, H. O'Harry. That's not really no? going to work, no, no. sadly. Um, yeah, it's basically a, a, a mid-century musical biopic, which does bring a certain amount of expectation, I think, at this point. Uh, but Hank Williams had a, a sort of a meteoric rise to fame and uh, and fell prey to alcoholism and uh, addiction to painkillers and died all too young at the age of just 29. So so Tom Hiddleston, who is remarkably youthful looking, of course, is already older than, than he was. Um, yeah. But that doesn't seem to matter. And, and even though Tom Hiddleston is Possibly the most English man alive. He actually does rather credibly with the, with the Alabama accent and with yeah. the with the with the country performance. I thought. Yeah, it's interesting. He's not quite as old in this movie as Kevin Spacey was. We played Bobby Darren. <laughs> that's honest. true. That's true. Uh, <laughs> it was almost twice the age of Darren was when he died. Um, that's I'm exaggerating. But uh, yeah, this this movie is a very it's it's, it's a good solid. Rather plodding movie, sadly, that is uh, worth seeing for the performances. Uh, Tom Hiddleston and Elizabeth Olsen as his first wife, who becomes his long-suffering first wife, and then his ex-wife because his behaviour goes off the rails. Uh, they're both very, very good, and Hiddleston's accent is great, and he sings and he plays guitar. And the beginning of the movie is very unforgiving, or would be very unforgiving if it wasn't if he wasn't uh, up to scratch, because it's it's him singing a Hank Williams yeah. song. A cappella, and he has the the charisma and the charm, and the talent to, to see it through. They're very good. All the performances around them are very, very good. The music is great. If you don't know Hank Williams' music, you know it's "I Saw the Light," "Lovesick Blues." That sort of music. It's it's very. It's got its own niche, but uh, yeah, people may remember him. Uh, a song of his being played in the Shawshank Redemption, for example. Very, very good stuff. Uh, my issue with the film is it's a bit slow. It's a bit formulaic it feels Helen you said a few weeks ago we were talking about uh, Miles Ahead the uh, 
the Miles Davis. Yeah. I hesitate to even use the word biopic because it's not that at no. all. But it, the walk it's, hard test though comes back test. into play, doesn't it? Yeah, this is a movie that feels like it is uh, directed by someone who has never seen Walk Hard. It ticks all the boxes, but in a rather dull, plodding fashion. Uh, but I gave it three stars for the magazine because the performances are great and the music will carry you through uh, till the end. And there are there are good scenes. There are, there are good things to be mined from this movie, but it's just a little bit meh. If you want to see a good country and western biopic, and who doesn't? Um, <laughs> the coal miner's daughter. Yes. This is SpaceX Oscar winning turn as Loretta, Rin, Loretta Lynn. Yeah. Um, is a very, very good movie and with a particularly good turn as well from Tommy Lee Jones. Well, yes. Th- before he was famous. Before Absolutely. he was famous. Well, one of the things, that, one of the issues I have with I Saw the Light is I don't think it says anything new, particularly about the demons that drive people who become famous. Because clearly something drives you to become famous. And then when you become famous, a lot of people, you know, uh, Hank Williams didn't quite join the 27 Club, but he wasn't far off it. He was 29 when he died. And something, again, drives him, whatever it is, demons or, or flaw in the character, flaw in the makeup. And it doesn't really have anything new to say about that, say about why you you go down that self-destructive path. And that's a bit of a shame. But it is, you know, otherwise uh, a solid and very handsomely mounted film. Three stars. For I saw the light, um, and then lastly this week we're going to talk about Bad Neighbors too, aren't we? Yeah, I'd love to. Yeah, um, I think Helen and I are going to probably diverge slightly on this one, but this is a film uh, called Neighbors: Sorority Rising in America. Um, over here, we don't know what those things are, so we're just calling it Bad Neighbors too, <laughs> um, which in a way it probably represents it better, I would say, because it doesn't do a lot more than the first one did. If you saw the first Bad Neighbors film, the setup is pretty straightforward. It's it's basically um, Seth Rogen and Rose Byrne trying to have a baby next door. The Animal House crew basically move in. A big frat house parties cause chaos and then a kind of a turf war develops as they jostle for supremacy. The frat boys have long since moved out and in have moved a sorority sorority house um, led by Chloe Grace Moretz with her friends. And they just really want to have a sisterhood. They're not really interested in those kind of big boozy parties they just want to hang out and be friends um and it's kind of a bit of a sort of a millennial revolutionary movement for them because women aren't allowed to have parties in in colleges sororities aren't sororities aren't allowed to have parties in colleges um but again seth rogan and rose burn are back in the firing line they want to sell their house and they have 30 days to not make sure that the, the prospective buyers aren't put off and they're expecting another baby to confuse things and then you've got the James, you've got the Dave Franco and Zac Efron crew back in it again. And I think this is where the film slightly comes unstuck. There's some very funny bits. Turns out Dave, uh, Dave Franco's character is actually gay. He was experimenting during his college years with being straight. And he's coming out as gay. Um, and that leaves Zac Efron on his own. So he joins the sorority group, finds his inner feminist and helps them wage war against his old rivals. The jokes are... Often you laugh. There's some good laugh-out-love moments, no question. But it doesn't really do anything for me. It doesn't do enough with it. You just end up retreading a lot of the old beats. And uh, it felt a bit raggedy as well. Um, there was a lot going on and I didn't really felt like it, it didn't really feel like it gelled into anything more than just a sequel because the first film did quite well. Um, so I'm... Well, yeah, but it's a comedy sequel, so they never gel anything into anything more than it's a sequel because the first one did well. No, I know. They? Well, that's that's probably why I'm a bit down on it because <laughs> you need a bit more than just that one did well. Let's do the same stuff. One of the things that this film does, and I think it applies probably as much to 
the the Anchorman and probably the Zoolander sequels is it takes something that it perceives the audience has loved about the first film and blows it up into something much bigger, which is fine. In this case, it's the airbag, game, yeah, which is fine, but it just draws attention to how kind of you're doing the same thing Workshop again. this, yeah. Is. I um, agree with that. I, I I do have a lot of reservations about this. On the other hand, I did laugh a lot at Zac Efron's feminist awakening, which I find hilarious. That's a great name for a band. <laughs> it really would be actually, um, and and at the same time, his his ridiculous frat boy antics. I thought those were very fun. Um, I thought that Rose Byrne and uh, and and Seth Rogen were still quite an amusing couple together, uh, and and I quite liked the whole. The, I mean, the the sisterhood get together to throw parties. Yeah, because sororities are not allowed to party, which is absolutely mind-boggling. The the, the National Pen Hellenic Conference, which governors governs the country's twenty-six major sororities, maintains that sisters cannot swing booze in sorority houses. Fraternities, however, can. Um, that is slightly mind-boggling, and and therefore the the whole little feminist angle of of the girls getting together, I thought, was really good because when it started off with the, with the perfect sorority in the white dresses. Led by Selena Gomez, you think, is this going to be some kind of mean girls, mm. sorority versus sorority kind of retread of Revenge of the Nerds or something like that? And it's not that, thankfully. Um, I, I felt like they were swinging for the pitch perfect fences with this. And it they just, were a it little not bit. The right, it didn't feel like the right I don't environment think... for that film because you, you yeah. have scenes where, you know, it wants to have its cake and eat it when it, it comes does. to doing this stuff. Yeah. And I think you can get the feminist things in there and that's admirable. But then you have a scene where Zac Efron gets his top off and all the women are drawn to it like a magnet. And you're like, well, it's not really kind of... It's not really consistent with, with what this film is trying to do. It's trying to do about eight different things. And I felt when you introduce three different groups of protagonists, the, the, that the is narrative difficult. became yeah. just all over the shop. Um, some of the editing felt really ragged. And I just... It just you know, you're right about the comedy sequel thing. There, there haven't been that many great comedy sequels. In no. fact, Naked Guns brings to mind. <laughs> Pitch it's, Perfect it's 2 tough. was pretty good. But, it's but yeah. Pitch Perfect 2 was okay. Yeah, but I don't know. It did feel, it smacked of, it needed a bit more work. It, you're right, it had some really funny bits. And it, by Mark Commode's Six Laughs and You're On a Winner, I mean, it passes that test. It does, yeah. But a lot of those laughs are some just really obvious slapstick craziness which you can't help but laugh at but doesn't really leave much of an impression a bit like this movie for me anyway mm, fair no. enough okay now we're in a very interesting uh, almost experimental phase of the Empire podcast here because normally at this point I would, I would say what we gave the film yeah Phil's writing the review and he hasn't written the review yet well I've just given it two stars verbally but I haven't written it down yet so okay would you like a pencil to... here's a pencil alright I'm writing down so it's likely two stars for Bad Neighbours 2 which yeah. is an unrecommendation. Yeah, I'm I'd not, go. Th- I'm not... I'd go three because I, yeah. I did laugh fairly consistently. So I'd, I'd probably go three. Yeah, Helen sounds like a three. So Helen's I don't three, know. I'm a two. Okay. But he's writing the but official writing review, the review, so. so there you go. It is the official review, and that is it. So once I write that, it once live that is... on air. <laughs> wow, that again. sounds like scintillating radio. Yeah, it is in at that point, and you cannot change that. You cannot change your opinion at any point. So get it right, Phil. I will. Don't forget, this week also <laughs> releases a Terence Malick film. Yeah, you're right, Phil, because uh, Night of Cups is out this week, and it might say something about how Terence Malick has, I think, declined in the minds of moviegoers, that yeah. perhaps we're leaving this to the last. Yeah, I think so too. I I love Terence Malick. I've already been... I reviewed this film for, for, uh, for the magazine, and I've already been um, assailed 
by certain people in the office, like George from Krang, about giving it a bad review. But, I mean, I love Terence Malick's films. I mean, from, you know, from Badlands, Days of Heaven, Thin Red Line, I'm a big, big fan of The New World. Mm-hmm. I think that's underrated. Um, since that kind of time, and, and especially since Tree of, Tree of Life felt like a bit of a watershed film for him, and since then with To the Wonder and this, you could kind of create a loose trilogy of very expressionist, very, sorry, very impressionist rather, impressionistic kind of gossamer thin, drifty, lots of beautiful cinematography. In this case, the story such as it is revolves around Christian Bale, who I don't think is a natural, I mean, he was good in The New World, but that felt more structured. I don't think he's a natural fit for a very sort of improvisational, unscripted kind of odyssey like this film. He just feels a little uncomfortable with with the way maybe Malick's working now. Um, Mm. Uh, it's very loose. He's a Hollywood screenwriter. He's a comedy writer. I mean, that immediately is a bad fit. You think, mm, <laughs> yeah, because he's basically playing a kind of a sort of a Bruce Wayne type L.A. guy who's got a lot of middle class problems, a lot of enormous numbers of women like hanging out with yeah. him, none of whom are very well developed. Um, and he's got problems with his father, who is a cantankerous man played by Brian Dennehy. Um, nice to see him in a Terence Malick yeah. film. Nice to see him at full stop. Full stop, yeah. absolutely. And and you know, it's it's shot by Chivo Lubitsky, who's won eighty seven Oscars in the last four <laughs> years. So it's, it looks beautiful as you'd expect. But that's kind of the very least you'd expect from a Terence Malick film. And I think since he's gone a bit less, somebody somebody phrases quite well. I think if you consider that the thin red line is sixty percent narrative, this is taking it down to like ten percent mm. narrative. You know, you've got a big party thrown by Antonio Banderas, Jason Clark shows up for, like, one scene. I can't tell if it's a cameo, whether he was just some major part of the film that's been cut out. You just mm. can't really tell. Um, the film is really about a man's search for meaning, um, which is a subject that I think Hollywood has not underserved down the years in itself. So you need to bring something new to it. Um, the Knight of Cups, the title refers to the tarot cards that kind of give this film a, ch- a chap- chapter structure. Um, and it's about his sort of inner pursuit of, of some meaning in his life. But... I, I didn't find much meaning in this film, I have to say. And I say that as someone that really genuinely loves Terence Malick. I just I just feel maybe he needs to do something a bit different to jolt himself out of out of this mid career mm-hmm. reverie. Because um, To the Wonder as well was Yeah. I, I mean I went into that as a Malick fan and I came out questioning everything I thought I knew I knew because I think if you went back and watched <sighs> Tree of Life again, a film which I really liked mm. at the time, after seeing To the Wonder and Knight of Cups, you'd probably like it less. Because it starts to feel indulgent, like he's indulging things and he needs someone to shake him out of it and say, find a story, bring your incredible gifts to bear on that story. Yeah. Um, find a female character who doesn't, and, like, yes. prance about in the core. True, that too. I think <laughs> Jessica Chastain was... was Jessica Chastain, yes. That role that, 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 I'm thinking more of uh, Olga Kurilenko in yes. To the Wonder um, and, and some of the ladies here. I, I just... I couldn't be having with. So, yeah. yeah. Have you read the? Uh, it was a really interesting piece by Thomas Lennon, who's in the film very, very briefly. He's um, an actor and uh, a writer as well. Wrote the Night at the Museum trilogy with his, with his writing partner. Um, he's in the film very, very briefly at a Hollywood party, and he said that there's a really interesting interview he gave. I can't remember which website. I'm so sorry, but Google it. You should be able to find it. And he basically said that he turned up on set and he knew nothing about what his character was meant to do or the lines. And it was a very strange, hazy, unfocused day of filming and improvising. Um, that ultimately he came out of Invigorated and thought, okay, that was quite fun, but it was a very frustrating uh, process for him. Um, yeah, I, I kind of agree. I'm not. I you know, I'm not a big fan 
of Malick's uh, late career detour. It's great that he's making movies again, but... it make, This film makes Antonioni's famously glacial L'Aventura feel like Tokyo Drift. I mean, it moves at, <laughs> at, 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 at this... Oh, I to mean, see Antonioni's Tokyo Drift. That, that would, would be, be incredible. Good. Um, but yeah, I mean, actors still queue up to work with him and, and I'm sure they'll continue to do mm. that because yeah. it seems like it's a great experience at the very least. Great actresses in this film... Um, and, and a, a good cast all around. Um, but it's, you know, hopefully the next one will be a mm. bit more... And the next one's on its way, so hopefully... The next couple are on the way. He's yeah, got one he's called Weightless and the, the one called uh, The Voyage of Time, which is uh, interesting, again, existential journey through, well, everything from, from what I can discern. This is the one with the... Uh, this is one he's been working on for ages and it has dinosaurs in it and... Again. All sorts more of dinosaurs. More yes. dinosaurs. Um, okay, okay. I'm just going to put this out here. We want more plot from Terence Malick, and we're okay with the dinosaurs. Yeah. Mm. Jurassic. Jurassic World Three. Mm. With the dinosaurs mm. wandering around, you staring see, meaningfully out to sea. Yes, you're raising your eyebrows at me, but you <laughs> know it would work. Blowing grass, and in yes. the grass, a dinosaur. Let in, yeah. Let's in no way take this as any form of indictment on Terence Malick, who no. has still made some of the greatest films committed to celluloid. Just the last couple, couple. not so much. But I, I'm sure he's got it in him to 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 dazzle us again. Yeah, I, yeah, the, yeah. This one left. We gave it two cold. stars. Okay, two stars then for Night of Cups, uh, and that's it for this week's Empire Podcast. Pretty much, I think. Yeah, I think. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, in fact, definitively, that's it for this week's Emperor Podcast. Uh, join us next week for more film-related fun. Where we'll be joined by yet again another double whammy of cracking guests. We'll have Richard Linklater, who'll be in to talk about everybody wants some double exclamation double mark. Double exclamation mark. Yeah. Yep. And then our kind of traitor star, Hugh McGregor. Double exclamation mark. Uh, he's been in everything else over the last few weeks, so it makes sense that he would eventually pitch up on the Empire podcast. Uh, so that is a lot of fun. You did that, Phil, didn't you? Yes. Yeah? I did. Good. Excellent. Just double checking. Excellent. So that's going to be a, a cracking week next week. Uh, and while we're at it, I should, of course, mention that today we should be putting up our Captain America Civil War spoiler podcast. We're putting it up maybe a little bit early. Usually we will wait until Monday, and we may still wait until Monday. Uh, but uh, so many of you have been asking for it that we feel that once the movie is out in the States we can we can unleash it upon the world so keep checking your RSS feeds keep refreshing your podcast apps keep looking at SoundCloud keep looking at iTunes keep looking to the skies because the Captain America Civil War podcast is on its way uh, and in a couple of weeks time look out for the uh, X-Men Apocalypse spoiler special podcast as well right until then it is goodbye from Helen totally it is goodbye from Phil cheerio and it's goodbye from me. I'm off to get my hands on Tony Stark's booty. I expect little resistance. Ew. See next week. <laughs> Didn't mean it like that. Oh no, now it sounds wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Or I could just pick one of the three Marvel Chrises. There's so much choice, Ellen. It's like it's like a trolley dash in a store full of hunks. <laughs> it's like an Abercrombie and Fitch trolley dash. That's what it is. I don't think they have trolleys in Abercrombie and Fitch. I asked. <laughs> you think they let people like me into Abercrombie and Fitch? <laughs> I have no idea what that store looked like. All I see is people outside looking like Zac Efron uh, and his manly pecs. I feel like we're getting off topic. Anyway, <laughs> thanks for listening. See you next week. Bye. <laughs>